Welcome to the series Breaking Bad, Redeeming Everyday Conflict. Everyone could use help navigating conflict, whether it's in the workplace, churches, their families, uh, all sorts of different places we run into conflict. My experience goes back really early. Gangs, clubs, and groups I affiliated with, I got in a lot of conflicts. And I would say the common denominator of those conflicts was me. Uh, I had this habit of speaking what I thought, no filter, and that would get me in a lot of trouble. I remember my mother once said to me, he who speaks the truth must have one foot in the stirrup. That meant I must be ready to go and get out of town. And it took me a long time to learn the importance of timing and framing and the gentleness and care of speaking the things that were on my mind. But this was the prequel of all the things that would happen later in my life. I continue to be a person who uh, tries to engage when I see things and you know, try to be a game changer if possible. Many times I've not done it right. There was a single event that I would say uh, has led me to this career trajectory. I am now full-time doing conflict work, and I love it. It's really rewarding. It's enriching. It is uh, just a unique career, and it's just something I want to be able to pass along uh, the takeaways that I've discovered the hard way. This particular story happened in June of 2001 on a Friday night. For a short time, I was leading a church of 3,000 members in Chicago and as an interim leader. And I had one event but that where I would be the speaker, and I had a very clear agenda of what I'd be doing that night, speaking. And the uh, title of that lesson was called The Blessing. And everything that, that happened that night uh, went as planned. It was a significant event in the history of the congregation. But I got deceived from that moment and really believed that I was on to something in a really a special place spiritually. And I took it upon myself to, to pray a prayer that I will never forget. The further background to that is I was reading a book from a Holocaust survivor. And decades later, this Holocaust survivor had uh, taken his own life and committed suicide. And I was really touched by this memoir, and it just could not get it out of my head. And I basically, uh, after reading this grueling book, feeling like that I had little to say in terms of offer answers of somebody in that degree of suffering, I felt like I I was out of touch with the plight of... Uh, millions and millions of people that had lived on the planet having no idea what suffering was truly like. I was in my early 40s, and I can say for sure I really never suffered in a great way. And uh, we've all had a death of a loved one, things like that, but I'm talking about something really, really intense. I had not. So I prayed this prayer, and it was this. I pray, God, that you pulverize me. That's right, I said that. And help me experience great grief and sorrow way beyond what I've ever experienced before. And then let me come out of it. And let there be no long-term harm done to me or my family, but so that I would be able to have insight and be able to offer a perspective to somebody who also has suffered in their life. And guess what? I forgot about that prayer. And I moved on with my life. And then a couple of years later, I would say about 18 months after that time, I was in a a church that was going through, same church, going through a very, very difficult time. 
And the way that things were processed in our staff was not very good. So on February the 18th of 2003, all of a sudden, there was an emotional eruption, people raising their voices, pointing their fingers, saying things that were just really severe, and it didn't stop. It happened again the next day and again a couple of days later. Uh, by the end of that month, uh, I was standing before the same congregation, at the most well-attended event that we ever had in our history, uh, explaining what had happened. My bumbling of that event led to what I would say is a 161-day ordeal where I lost about 70 friends, had people stalking my house, entering our doors uh, um, uninvited, and just uh, some really horrific events that I don't want to go into. And then I knew the day that it was over. It's clear as in my mind was July 28th. I made it to the end of that ordeal. Went on a five-week sabbatical. And during those five weeks, I read all of the material that I could possibly consume about what happens to organizations and communities in crisis. And I had a series of epiphanies that led me on the the journey that I'm on today. So we're going to talk today about feeling bad, the first steps following a conflict. I have been there, and I know what it's like to feel really bad, to feel bad about myself, to feel bad about uh, providence, to feel bad about other people, and that's what we're going to be doing today. What are some of the bad feelings that we can have? We can have the feelings of uncertainty. What do I do now? Or surprise, we could be confused. Something just happened. I cannot explain it. What was that? Or guilt. I don't like what's going on inside of me. Anger. I'm mad and I'm not going to take it anymore. Hurt. I feel like a victim. I have been wronged and somebody needs to make it right. A weakness. I feel out of control. Fear, that sense of risk, or embarrassment. Why why in the world did I do that? Those are kind of bad feelings that we can have, whether we are actually part of the conflict or in such great proximity to it, maybe the helplessness we can have that puts us in the mode of the zone of some of these feelings. I want to convey something right off the top. Conflict gets a bad rap. It is not our enemy. Conflict can be one of the most uh, valuable resources we have. And we're going to talk about that a little bit. But I just want you to understand, conflict is not always our enemy. Sometimes it is a welcome guest and properly managed can actually save us a lot of grief uh, later. So I want you to think about the benefits of a well-managed conflict. New knowledge that we can gain as a result of a conflict opportunity to develop some life skills. Sometimes if we're in a conflict, we have to quickly uh, read or get training or coaching so that we can manage a situation. But those life skills are uh, valuable forever. Uh, Relationships. If we manage our conflicts well, we can salvage relationships and actually do something much more. It's to go to a deeper place in our relationships, to build more meaning from the uh, endurance through an experience. That's, of course, if we manage it well. Uh, There are opportunities that conflict opens us up to. 
and uh, confidence that we get when we have navigated a conflict and we've reached a great place of closure and, and, and we feel like we can handle the next one that comes along. By definition, if we have made it all the way through a conflict and have handled ourselves well, or in the end learned how to handle ourselves well, we have matured. And so that's something that just happens by osmosis if we are navigating and growing in our knowledge and our ability to handle conflict. And the last one I would say is honor. There's nothing like handling a conflict well to give you dignity by those around you, uh, to get that respect because uh, they'll see who we were all along uh, has come out by the way we have managed our conflict. And uh, this gives us a chance to be seen for who we are. And so I would say being able to manage our conflicts well has a lot of benefits. You know, we, we can easily find graphics of what conflicts look like. Somebody really mad at themselves or somebody really mad at their spouse. And of course, there's always kids nearby who pick up the debris. Or uh, conflicts in the worst workplace that usually never end in fisticuffs, but uh, the intensity can be there in the workplace. And of course, uh, uh, women girl fights are another form of conflict. And and uh, you know, obviously, uh, not all conflicts are are so outward. Some can be passive aggressive, and some where people withdraw and they just uh, leave each other, and maybe even uh, do damage to the uh, their adversary in ways that are not initially seen. But I want to give you some. From me to you, lessons from the school of hard knocks. I have had the hard knocks. And there's five things that I hope to be able to give you in this lesson about feeling bad, question mark, is I want to talk to you about a resource that you have. Yes, you already have it. You may not know you have it, but you have it. And uh, an outlook. This outlook will make so much difference. This piece of information that I'll be sharing with you in just a few minutes uh, will help you instantly in the middle of a conflict. It'll give you a tool just by having this perspective or outlook. Give you an insight, a personal advice, and even an exercise that as you are preparing to engage in a conflict that you can't not ignore, you must deal with. It'll be about preparation work before you actually get engaged. The resource is the scriptures. Yep, it is the greatest resource around. In particular, Genesis, Exodus, and Deuteronomy, the Proverbs, the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, the four Gospels and the book of Acts, the letter of James, Paul's letter to the churches, First and Second Corinthians, Romans, and on in Ephesians, and then First Peter. These are immensely valuable resources. And let me also tell you why these are great resources. In the history of the world, we had the Babylonians and Mesopotamia and Egyptians. Uh, had uh, conflict resolution mechanisms in place that preceded what we have written in the Bible. And if you were to read them today, you would be very, very glad that those are not the, uh, the source of our legal system to this day. Uh, there was a lot of uh, bogusness around the idea of mediation, arbitration, litigation, and how to tell if somebody was guilty and how they should be punished if they were guilty. Highly arbitrary, sometimes uh, tied in with uh, abstract and uh, spontaneous views of what the gods were like. 
And then after the suffering, the plight of the Jews being in Egypt and their exodus, uh, 60 days after their exodus, they received um, not only a standard of how to deal with conflict, being in the Ten Commandments and surrounding teaching. A few days before that, Moses was given advice by his father-in-law that is immensely valuable. It explains the kind of mechanisms that a large community should have in place for navigating conflict. To this day, what we find in the Old Testament, then updated or upgraded by the New Testament, has been the evolving pieces of literature that have helped peacemakers and governments and mediators and arbitrators uh, sort out things that we have dealt with uh, for thousands of years. And they're really rooted in Scripture. I remember one time, actually this happened three times, but at one particular time I was picking up my luggage at an airport and uh, this was the third time in a row my luggage did not come out of the um, the conveyor belt like everybody else's did. And I remember one time, knowing that it happened twice already, running to the conveyor belt to just make sure it didn't get stolen. Because the previous two times it ended up showing up, but I, I, did, I couldn't understand this. Now, what... What happened was, after the third time, and I was distressed and could not get help at the airport, and ended up getting my taxi uh, and leaving the airport and going on to my hotel, I really realized afterwards there may be a blessing in this. So I go back to the airport and find my luggage. And here's how I found my luggage. I had recently become a priority um, customer with United Airlines and what they do is they grab your luggage before it gets on the conveyor belt and take it to a place of watch and safety which is where I found it all three times. I had not realized that that was a feature that I had. So as a resource the Bible is something that people have. They don't realize they have in that resource the ability to solve problems by looking at case studies. For instance, there are case studies about envy and rivalry, unmet needs, differences, uh, grievances and injustice. What happens when the one figure is personally ambitious, what that does to others around them. There's all sorts of things about dysfunction and the conflicts caused by poor communication and what happens with personal grudges and misunderstanding and carelessness. There's so many stories there and the outcome of those stories And the handling of those stories are rich places for us to go to for things that we we deal with. Okay, now, I want to talk about an outlook. Here's the outlook. Basically, I know this sounds simple, accept humanity. Now, it's a lot deeper than it sounds. I'll tell you what, what I mean. We're talking about the way humans respond based on their neurological system in their brain. And what is actually functioning sometimes automatically. And for instance, the amygdala part of our brain, there's these two uh, parts of our brain around the temple that are about the size of an almond that are, are govern our reptilian responses for self-preservation. So if we were to see a snake heading in our direction, we are not thinking about, hey, I wonder if that is poisonous or not. Let me look up an encyclopedia to look at the colors of that, the markings on the snake to see if it's a friendly one or if it's just curious or if it's somebody's pet. Now, the amygdala causes us to go into a fight-or-flight mode that's really, for the most part, 
serving us very, very well. And this is a thing that allows us to survive. We need our amygdala. We should be grateful that we have an amygdala. And then there's the hippocampus. This is a part of our brain for memory, uh, learning, emotions, and um, this is very, very important for us to have depth, and it's uh, part of our, our relationships function very much out of the hippocampus. Then there's the prefrontal cortex for nuance, reasoning, creativity, and perceptions. And the way that these function uh, dependent on each other and interdependent on each other is really important. I want you to remember the 1585 rule. Of these three parts of our brain, 15% is the amygdala and the hippocampus compared to the 85 of the cortex. Conflicts are best resolved when the cortex, the prefrontal cortex, is unimpeded, thus enabled the freedom to consider the big picture and to explore nuance, logic, creativity, speech, reading, spatial concepts, deciphering, sensory perception, and conscious thought. But when we are anxious and we are basically... uh, The 15% is choking us. We are being reactive. We are being emotional. Our cortex cannot do its work. And so the words angst, anxiety, anxiousness, and anger all are rooted in the same Latin word. And that word means choke, literally to choke. So when we are under great anxiety, our rational brain, part of our brain, is being choked from being able to solve a problem. So here we want to pass the steering wheel to the cortex to be able to be thoughtful and make good decisions when we are being irrational and in a lockdown mode with our amygdala and hippocampus at work. And this usually happens when we're in a threat. Like if we're in a major conflict, we may feel a personal threat, but we may feel strong emotions. We may feel anger. All these things are hindering us from being able to see reality. So if you are in a conflict with somebody, a verbal exchange that has escalated, it is a rule of thumb that it usually takes about four minutes of either absolute silence or um, soothing conversation or one party doing all the listening for the, uh, the matter to get back into a place where you can uh, make some progress. And so the, the, one of the things we want to do is in uh, accepting humanity is if we see somebody acting out in such a way that is, we find offensive, we've got to remember there's a human nature piece that's going on here. We should not take too serious the facial expressions, the careless words, the artifacts of somebody feeling out of control and just let that pass create a space where everybody can get in a good place of reason and then begin the conversation again and one of the best tools for doing that is telling the other party hey I want to know exactly what you're thinking and feeling from beginning to end I am not going to interrupt you I really want to hear this out because um, what you think and feel matters to me and that's one of the ways we get somebody to, to begin to act in a more rational way. Okay, here's an insight. Know yourself. I know it doesn't sound deep either. So far, you must be thinking, uh, 
where is this profound material that this teacher from Chicago is sharing with us here? Well, yeah, Know Yourself is pretty amazing. Um, Wise prophet Jeremiah once said, let us examine our ways and test them. He was using the same Hebrew word that's used for assaying metals, testing metals. And in the book of Jeremiah, the Lord had asked Jeremiah to be a tester of the institution, of the ways of the people. And as the challenge went on, Jeremiah wasn't sure he was up for it, and he was asking the Lord even ultimately to test him. So we have to examine ourselves and who we are. And one of the best ways to figure out who we really are is how we handle conflict, how we respond. Um, why do I say what I say, do what I do? What are some things about me that are reoccurring in uh, relationship struggles? What are some family of origin issues, birth order issues, uh, traumatic events, triggers? Uh, who am I? Why do I do what I do? These are really important questions. The Apostle Paul also said to examine yourself. i tell you the most important qu- uh, quote that I could think in uh, secular literature comes from Socrates, according to a famous account of his death written by Plato. Socrates was told to stop teaching his pupils to examine things and to stop questioning everything so much. And Socrates had a chance to go free. And he said, and if I say that the greatest good of a man is daily to converse about virtue, and he really was talking about to explore the meaning of life and why we do what we do. And then he says, and that the life which is unexamined is not worth living. Well, he was put to death, but he was right. And if we are not able to go to that place of figuring out who we are and the meaning of our life story and to probe some of the darker recesses of what we've done and why we've done them, uh, we're going to have a less meaningful life and a less effective life and an impeded life because we will have reoccurring issues because we've not grown, because we've not chosen to look inside. Here's some advice. Seek mentors. The value of having a mentor is just uh, cannot be underst- uh, overstated, whether we're talking professionally or, or spiritually. With a mentor, you can get objectivity. Uh, you get personal feedback. You get coaching. Somebody can be a sounding board. And somebody can help you set your goals. I will frequently uh, get feedback, even even in large group settings. I'll speak before a big group, and then after it's all done, I'll say, okay, how did I do? What should I do different? Well, this is important for for a couple of reasons. It's important for me so that I can grow from each opportunity. It's important for them that if if they felt like I really met a great need, and let's say I did a B-plus performance job for them, I want them to use me again, so I want to hit an A next time. And so frequently I'll get thoughts of, hey, could we have a handout next time or could we get some material in advance so that we could be prepared or or could you go a little slower or in our environment some of those words are not familiar could you provide meaning for those and uh, I want people to feel free to approach me I will tell people right up front hey I have ADD a visual retention disorder an audio retention disorder and severe dyslexia and uh, these things actually would be uh, 
impediments. I've used that word a few times already, but impediments to my ability to stand before a group and effectively convey a message. But I believe so badly what I'm trying to get through that I'll be willing to push through those difficulties, the hurdles that I am facing, and also to welcome uh, critique because I think in the very end what's going to happen is the message is going to get through. And in my particular message that I'm speaking uh, in so many circles is conflict competence and how to navigate uh, difficult spots in communities. So uh, what I do is I, I do get objectivity. I do solicit feedback. I have coaches in my life. I use people as sounding boards and trying things. And I set goals and have other people help me uh, evaluate those goals. This is a quote that I think is fitting right now. Watch your thoughts, for they become words. Watch your words, for they become actions. Watch your actions, for they become habits. Watch your habits, for they become your character. And watch your character, for it becomes your destiny. What we think, we become. And, you know, I can't become what I want to become on my own. I need mentors. I need people around me that's part of my think. Okay, here's some other advice here. In conflict, don't trust your memory. If you're feeling bad because of the way you are recalling something and you're rehashing it and regurgitating it and uh, playing it over and over and over again, um, you are at, you're bound to be destroying your memory in the very process. Here's what we do know. There's been studies done that people of the greatest of character, known to have integrity, uh, will mess up the facts of an event almost immediately after they've happened in their own storage mechanisms in their head uh, if there's a lot of emotions involved. And what happens, the subconscious will rework the memories so that we come out smelling better than we actually were in the event. There's a famous story with Tom Brokaw where he was, early in his days, he interviewed somebody famous, and the interview really went bad. And uh, in his memoir, decades later, he tells the story and quotes what the thing said by the person he was interviewed that made it go so bad. Well, there was somebody out there that read this book and that remembered that interview and went and found the tapes. And it was actually Tom Brokaw who said the thing that made the interview go so bad. Tom, being a great guy, we, everybody likes Tom Brokaw, uh, actually uh, did this very thing that I'm talking about. I have uh, taken minutes of events that are emotional and and kept really good records. Uh, Sometimes people call them verbatims. Right after something really significant that you know is going to be important to talk about later, write it down right at that moment. And what I have found is if I have taken weeks or months without looking at that, I will tell the story different than it really, really was. And it will not look like the verbatim that I wrote down. So just think about that. Let's not let our conflicts to go on forever based on memory. Uh, there's other ways to navigate how things fell out than just trusting a memory. Okay. Here's important. When we get into conflicts, to measure our progress. I can think of first major conflicts that I got in in my church world. I could think of some low grades that I would give myself on some of them. I would see a little bit later, I would do better. You know, we learn. And then over time, you can see, hopefully, as we grow, we mature, we get better grades. 
But I've known some people that get low grades on all of their conflicts. They go to a certain mode that they become known as somebody who's not good at dealing with conflict. They get low grades because this is not something that they have decided to go after. I don't think it is an indictment of the person's sincerity or meaning their awfulness or whatever. But I think what it means is that they haven't done their own life work. They haven't figured out what events in their past are being played out again in later conflicts. What trauma, what triggers, what family of origin issues. There's something there that they have yet to explore, maybe out of fear to actually look back. So therefore, they don't become proactive in becoming conflict competent. But here's what we're going to do. Right now, I'm going to give you a test so you can if you are in a feeling bad moment okay and you just are not happy with how you're feeling on the inside and uh, you know you're about ready to meet with that party that maybe it's even in a mediation just to talk through what had happened here's some things some steps to go through to check yourself before you go into that engagement number one stand down Stop behaviors that you are told are intimidating or combative. Just stand down. Don't do them. They're not worth it. And, you know, it's just don't do it. A hot-tempered person must pay the penalty, it says in Proverbs 19.19. Rescue them and you will have to do it again. Let it just not be us, you know. Uh, Not hot-tempered, not intimidating. That shows up in our body language, our facial expressions, the tone in our voice. Stand down. Secondly, stand apart. Set a good example in the midst of disorder. James, in the New Testament, says in chapter 3.13, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by their good life. By deeds done and the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And it goes on. Talks about disorders that are existing. So how do we stand apart? Make sure we're living right. We're humble. Um, And... uh, are a good example in the midst of even a conflict. Rise above. Responding to poor reactions with personal calmness during your disagreement. We don't have to retaliate. We don't have to snipe, throw a defense back at everything that comes to us. We can rise above it because that is what will be remembered from the encounter, both by the person who said it to us and both maybe by some witnesses or mediators. Rise above. There is a proverb in chapter seventeen twenty-seven: The one who has knowledge uses words with restraint. And whoever has understanding is even tempered. I can imagine, and actually I can remember situations where I had a whole lot of data I had facts, I had homework, I had documentation that would uh, prove my point in a conflict. And I remember choosing not to use them because it was already becoming clear what has been going on. I didn't want to overpower the other party. I want to win them over. It's not about beating somebody. 
It's about finding peace and order and hope on the other side. So let's let's not treat our fights, our conflicts, like they are fights to be won. These are not about being generals or soldiers. They're about throwing olive branches out and reaching out and finding ways to look beyond what has offended us and so forth. Okay, next, step in. Express the truth with love in order to be helpful. Okay, in Ephesians 4.15, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head. Verse 25, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, and so forth. So, step in, and like that means, hey, this is my perspective about what has happened, or this is how I see it. Let's spend time talking about this. And the idea is staying connected. Stepping in is saying, you matter, this matters, we matter, our community matters, let's talk what through what has happened. It's got to be done in the spirit of love. Once again, it's not about winning something except for winning the relationship. Stooping below. Humble yourself to fair criticism and the guidance of mature people. This is hard. That in the middle of uh, a conflict that you would actually consult people that are in the community and are possible eyewitnesses to your behavior, your response, your reactions, your personal history, and saying, hey, what do you see? Help me out. Am I making this conflict worse? And give me some feedback. In Psalms 25, 9, says, He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful towards those who keep the demands of his covenant. For the sake of your name, Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. But even when our iniquity is not great in a situation, stooping below is still very, very effective. And I can think of stories in the Bible, like in the case of Joseph. Uh, Joseph at age 17 was uh, carried off by his brothers and sold to some men who sent him off to Egypt, he was massively, gravely, horribly wronged. There's no doubt about it. He was the innocent party. If you go back though and look in Genesis, he wasn't perfectly innocent. I mean, he was boasting. He was a tattletale. He was using dreams and what was inappropriate and in how he expressed them, which alienated his brothers. He was the favored kid and it looks like he wasn't doing anything to equal the situation. So, Did Joseph have some things to think about during his time of being away from the family? Sure, he did. In a virtual sense, though, he was innocent. He was not guilty of anything worthy of the outcome that he had received. And so sometimes I'll remember the story of Joseph or Job or John the Baptist or Jesus, and I'll think, if they can be humble and they can be self-reflective and they're innocent... If they can stay very even and surrendered, how much more so than me? And so I tell people that find themselves in a conflict that they really feel like they're innocent, and they actually might be. I still say, you can learn. There's things you can learn from this process. Don't waste the pain. You can grow from it. You can get insight. 
Stay open to the things you will learn by stooping below. Step up. Facing the responsibility of your past decisions and actions. In Luke chapter 6, verse 45, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. You know, if I ever say something that's inappropriate in lashing out or have hurt somebody, um, I'm not going to say, uh, well, I didn't really mean that, or, uh, oh, uh, yeah, I should have been more careful or whatever. No, I, the better thing to do is to look inside. Where did that come from? What was going on in my heart? That's what Jesus is saying in this passage. Our actions and our words reflect something that's in our heart. Now, that may not necessarily be true if if we made a snap response where we think we're saving our life or whatever. I'm talking about but in the midst of conflict, and if I say mean things, there's meanness in there. And I need to look at that. And then step up and face the responsibility by saying, you know what? What I said to you is harmful. It came from a bad place in my heart. I'm not proud of it. I'm sorry for it. And I would like your forgiveness. Okay? And that may not be the whole picture of the conflict. But the peace that's mine, I've got to own up to. That's what stepping up is all about. Step back. Let false accusations toward you miss their target with a factual story or total silence. We've seen this both ways in the New Testament. Most of the time Jesus has been accused, he is quiet. He doesn't bother to defend himself. He might make a statement or two, but he does not defend himself. And uh, a lot of the times the Apostle Paul um, is accused of something, he does defend himself. But it's usually kind of different scenarios. Usually he's doing this in the church with his fellow man, uh, where some of the Christians have accused him of things. What he tends to do is put out the facts that are not clearly understood that are helpful for making uh, people understand what's happened. He actually does this in Acts chapter 24 when he's uh, leveled false accusations about his ministry uh, by the Roman government, and he does it in a really great way. So that is just saying, hey, just so you know, this is what I am really doing. But Jesus shows in, in Hebrews chapter 12, 1-3 as a passage that describes what Jesus did when the false accusations came at him with great vigor. It says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning the shame. What that means is, if somebody is full of rage and anger at you, instead of fighting it or defending yourself against it, sometimes you just read the weather on that one. You go, you know what? I'm just not going to let it hit me. I'm going to scorn it. I'm going to let it just completely miss me. I'm not going to let it in. I'm not going to hear it. I'm not going to give it any seriousness because it is out of line. But the way that Jesus did this in the Gospels is in a very calm way. He just didn't accept the verdict as being right and he entrusted himself to God and let that be the end of the story and then lastly stay calm staying put in a relaxed way when under attack I love this passage 
Stay put in a relaxed way when under attack. It says in Ecclesiastes 10.4, If a ruler's anger rises against you, do not leave your post. Calmness can lay rest off, lay great offenses to rest. The image here up on the screen of this uh, woman, uh, I'm not sure which movie this comes from, but every Google search that I did on somebody under unfair attack or false accusation with pointing fingers, whatever, this came up on every one of them. And what I see in it is obviously she's a bit, has some trepidation in her face. But she's decided not to run. She stays put. And she looks up and away from the angry faces and is trying to be calm in the moment. And and one of the things that diffuses anxiety in a group that's in conflict is when the accused doesn't run, doesn't put up a tantrum, doesn't fight back, just stays until the matter has calmed down. And it's a very, very powerful thing to do. Oh, yes, and then lastly, step down. Gladly accepting objective third-party mediation or arbitration. And this, that takes courage to sometimes do that. Matthew chapter 18 it talks about it. We some of the, see it modeled again in Acts 15 over a theological issue. But Matthew 18 is dealing with sins or offenses. And if somebody has accused us of something and say, hey, I have some witnesses to what has happened, we should be willing to say, okay, let's get some help. Or, um, really, the best thing to do is find out who in the community is better than a witness, but maybe the uh, mediators or the strongest, wise folks in the church and say, can we get some help here? When people try to be the mediator or moderator of their own conflict, they are making a costly mistake. It never will go well. Now, when we have skin in the game, it's time to let somebody who doesn't come in to help us out. You know, we are in a marathon, and we are going to feel bad many times in our life. It's going to happen over and over and over again, either from things that have happened to us or the things we do or the things that are a combination. And so if we know we're going to have conflict at work, at home, at church, in the neighborhood, and uh, in, in the in the car with the potential of road rage around us or things that will happen in a checkout counter or wherever we are. If we know we're going to encounter conflict all the days of our life, it's just going to be a normal part of our living, then we should expect ourselves to get better. And I've given you a resource, an outlook, some insight and personal advice and an exercise for the next time you find yourself in one to make sure you can center yourself and be prepared to face it and be in your best spot. Lastly, I want to challenge you with a quote from Eric Erickson, a social scientist. And the challenge is for you to be the person in your neck of the woods, your neighborhood, your family, your church, your workplace, that calibrates the environment by how you handle conflict. He says, there are certain individuals who, in the process of resolving their own inner conflicts, become paradigms for the broader groups. Thank you very much.